Thanks for listening to the Leader Coronavirus Daily. Over the last few weeks, we've concentrated on covering the COVID-19 pandemic, bringing you news, interviews, analysis and special features. We'd love it if you could share the show with anyone you think might benefit from it and get in touch. Use the hashtag TheLeaderPodcast. Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is the Leader Coronavirus Daily. Hi, I'm David Marsland. The UK's coronavirus death toll may be higher than first thought, much higher. We're now getting more statistical evidence of when we look in the round, both in hospital and in the community, the numbers are underpublished and the truth is much more alarming than we've been told so far. Our health editor Ross Lydell on why some doctors fear the United Kingdom could become the worst affected country in Europe by this disease. Also... Eight million people in Britain are facing food insecurity and that three million are actually going hungry since the lockdown. Investigations editor David Cohen on the millions of people struggling to eat during this pandemic and what the Evening Standard is doing to help. Taken from the Evening Standard's editorial column, this is the Leader Coronavirus Daily. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, what is the real COVID-19 death toll? As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi there, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and across the Six Nations as Europe's elite go head-to-head in rugby's oldest international competition. Each week, we'll be looking at the QBE Predictor, which forecasts the results of each round of matches. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe now and download wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. It's been the worst three weeks of my life um, working in this sector. I can't describe um, how difficult this has been for residents, for the staff, for the families the management team to to have been dealing with this for three and a half weeks now. 
The UK's care home bosses, like Nicola Richards, who runs Palm Row in Sheffield, are facing a crisis like nothing they've ever seen before. More than 2,000 homes across the country have registered a coronavirus outbreak, putting the elderly inside at risk and those who look after them. I found out a colleague has tested positive and one of our staff members is in intensive care. It's just incredibly, incredibly tough at the moment. It's an emerging catastrophe, a visible sign of the pressure being brought down on a country that is still to see the peak of COVID-19 infections, and Westminster remains empty. The Evening Standard's editorial column says the building can be closed, but the MPs must still hold the government to account. We need Parliament back, not just as a symbol of democracy's resilience, but to do a job that matters. The leader of the Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, says it will return next week, but he hasn't said how. When so many people are working from home, there should be no reason why MPs can't too. And as the Hansard Society and the Constitution Unit point out today, that means an effective parliament without MPs having to travel. Just allowing a few dozen of them to ask questions of ministers over a Zoom link isn't a substitute. The Commons should prioritise action on coronavirus, drop irrelevant business such as private members' bills, strengthen committees to grill ministers, and set up an encrypted secure online voting system to get legislation moving again. It's a route to the sort of effective parliament which we need anyway. Among questions that could be asked is what is the true death toll for coronavirus? Figures from the Office for National Statistics suggest it's far higher than we previously thought. The Evening Standard's health editor Ross Lydell joins me now over Zoom. And Ross, how big a difference is there? Well, basically, there is about a 50% difference between what we know now and what we were told at the time. Uh, This isn't necessarily to blame the government or the hospitals supplying these figures, but what the ONS has done, and this is obviously retrospectively, you know, with the benefit of time and a couple of weeks to really crunch the numbers and to look outside hospitals as well, it's basically found that over the period of uh, up until the start of April, the government had declared just over 4,000 deaths. ONS said for the similar period or the same period, the true number is 6,235. To be fair to the government, it didn't know any better at the time. It was relying on the best evidence it had. But it does show that really these figures have to be taken with uh, quite a pinch of salt when we hear them each day at Downing Street or from the Department of Health Twitter account. So we're starting to get a much clearer picture now, aren't we, of how hard coronavirus is hitting this country and London especially. That's right. So basically, the significance of today's figures is one that the data we're given each day is not as up to date as it could be or is not as accurate as it should be. And two, that about 10% of the deaths are actually happening in care homes or in the community. And there's this great unknown, really, exactly how many people are dying outside hospital. In relation to London, in terms of the number of deaths, yesterday we had 158 deaths in London. Today we have just actually received a statement from NHS England, just as we are mid-podcast, that of the 
744 people who died in the last 24 hours or whose deaths were reported in the last 24 hours, 206 are in London. So that's a jump up again. And that does essentially show that the, the deaths reported yesterday in London were subject to something of a lag over the Easter bank holiday, which is not unexpected. And as this new picture is becoming clearer, in fact, even before these figures were released by ONS, there have been some doctors and health experts saying that they think Britain will be the hardest hit country in Europe by coronavirus. This sort of started towards the end of last week when US researchers predicted that the UK would be the worst hit in Europe. And their statistical model was to a degree discredited because it was using old figures. And obviously there's been a massive increase in these beds as the NHS rushed to get ready. In fact, it's reported today in the Health Service Journal that only 19 people were in London's Nightingale Hospital over the weekend because hospitals are still able to cope. They still have the capacity in their wards, albeit their expanded wards. But then on Sunday, in probably a more meaningful intervention, Sir Jeremy Farrar, who is the chief executive of the Wellcome Trust, which is a massive charity that funds lots of medical research, and he's also on the government scientific advisory committee, he said that it's entirely possible, if not probable, that the UK would come out worse. Now, the thing to remember, of course, is that there's no other city in Europe as big as London. You've got nearly 9 million people here, and that obviously does not help in terms of transmission. Uh, we probably take our national pride and think, well, we, can, we should do better than Spain and Italy, which have been the two that have been rather setting the pace in Europe so far. And we look enviously upon Germany, which seems to have been doing much better in terms of far fewer deaths. But this is a concern. And what today's ONS stats essentially are doing, and this is for the second week in a row, is showing the number of deaths outside hospitals. So really, we're now getting more statistical evidence of what Jeremy Farrar and others are saying, that when we look in the round, both in hospital and in the community, the numbers are underpublished and are creeping up, and the truth is much more alarming than we've been told so far. Next. I mean, it's hard enough, all the things that we're dealing with, and then on top of that, to have that to worry about. David Cohen on why so many people in the UK are being forced to give up meals during the lockdown. In the UK supermarkets, things are starting to return to normal. Shelves are fairly well stocked in most places after being stripped in the first few days of lockdown. But that's of no consolation to those who can't afford to buy food. And with furloughing, pay cuts and job losses, that's an increasing number of people, perhaps millions. Our investigations editor David Cohen is running the Evening Standards Appeal, Food for London Now, and he joins me over the phone. David, this situation's getting worse, isn't it? Yes, there was a report over the weekend, a YouGov survey for the Food Foundation has found that 8 million people in Britain are facing food insecurity and that 3 million are actually going hungry since the lockdown, by which they mean one member of the family has missed a meal that day. 
and they think this is as a result of some precipitous drops in income that have led to millions more being pushed into food poverty. So this is an issue caused by people being furloughed and people losing their jobs during this pandemic rather than a stockpiling problem with shortages of food for people to buy. Yes, I think that I mean I think that some of that stockpiling uh, reporting was a bit overblown. Uh, some of those people were just um, realizing that they, you know, would have to self-isolate and wouldn't be able to get out for a while. But um, it's not because of any lack of food in the supply chain. This is about people who were relying on food, perhaps through their schools or through charities, who now can't do so, and also a whole lot of additional people who've entered the sort of food poverty uh, space, if you like, um, as a result of, uh, you know, just being one paycheck away from um, being unable to pay their rent and, and things like that. So there are a lot of people who are just above the poverty line who've lost their jobs or who have been furloughed and uh, who are now struggling on that front as well. This must be incredibly difficult for people particularly you know those in families who are trying to avoid getting an illness like COVID-19 and then on top of that being unable to eat or having to make that decision on whether to eat themselves or feed their children. Yes I think it's an extreme stress situation for families in that situation I mean it's hard enough all the things that we're dealing with and then on top of that to have that to worry about We've had some mothers, for example, pick up food parcels at schools. Some schools have opened up um, sort of market days so that struggling families can collect food. And our appeal partner, the Felix Project, has been dropping off uh, fresh food parcels. And one of the mothers said, you know, that actually she was so relieved just picking up some potatoes that... Um, it's made her feel a lot less scared for the coming weeks. This is the kind of thing that the Evening Standard appeal was set up for, isn't it? To try and help those people who are, through no fault of their own, unable to feed themselves and their families. Uh, exactly, David. And I, and I have to say that, firstly, the food suppliers have really stepped up to the plate. Our campaign partner, the Felix Project, has tripled their uh, supply of fresh surplus food since lockdown from 10 tonnes a day to 28 tonnes a day. And this week they expect to hit 30 tonnes a day. And that is the equivalent of 400,000 meals a week being delivered to vulnerable families across London. And um, also we have the, um, the good news to report today that actually our donations have passed the 1.5 million mark. So Londoners are giving and continuing to give very generously. And that's The Leader Coronavirus Daily. You can keep up with all the latest COVID-19 developments with the Evening Standards live blog, which you'll find at standard.co.uk. And we also have morning briefings available at 7am through your smart speaker. Just ask for the news from The Evening Standard. This podcast is back tomorrow at 4pm.